from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 1st. Today, breaking down this week's Democratic debates, the falling out between Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump, and how the word squad jumped from pop culture to politics. Amber Phillips, what do you do? I analyze politics for the Fixed Politics blog at The Washington Post. And what were you thinking as you were watching the debates over the last couple nights? The gloves are definitely off. Your response, Senator Harris? Absolutely. Unfortunately, Vice President Biden, you're just simply inaccurate in what you're describing. I correct you, Mr. Vice President. You were bragging calling it the Biden crime bill up till 2015. Vice President Biden. Senator Cory Booker and Senator Kamala Harris know that the path to their nomination goes through Joe Biden. Joe Biden needs to fall or be, you know, severely kneecapped in order for them to pick up some of his supporters. So that's where we saw things really get feisty. There was nothing done for the entire eight years he was mayor. There was nothing done to deal with the police department. Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Uh, you, need to, you need to come to the city of Newark and see the reforms that we put in After the last debate, people were talking about the Kamala Harris-Joe Biden altercations moments. And I think people were expecting that to happen this time. But it seemed like Cory Booker was taking up more of the work of really going after Biden in some sharp, surprising ways. He was. I wouldn't say this debate was a do-or-die moment for Cory Booker. He's still pulling decently well. But he knew that standing next to Joe Biden— Right after Joe Biden had released a criminal justice reform plan, which is kind of Cory Booker's area he's been focusing on his entire time in public service, was his moment to take a stand and get us talking about him the next day. And he, leading up to the debate, has not minced words about where he thinks Joe Biden is on this. He thinks Joe Biden is a dinosaur in criminal justice, that the man who, I'm paraphrasing here, but the man who put together this tough-on-crime legislation that Booker says led to mass incarceration of black men has no business trying to talk about how to fix it. That's his main point. And that's a sharp thing to say. In addition, Booker's really good at saying things in a buzzy social media way, kind of dropping the mic kind of moments. And so he combined his his record on criminal justice reform with criticism of Joe Biden with like these really buzzy lines. We have a system right now that's broken. And if you want to compare records, and frankly, I'm shocked that you do, uh, I am happy to do that. Booker can be effectively feisty, is the term I'll describe him when he's on. And he was definitely on last night. What were some of the other interesting pairings of people who were really going after each other? When you step back, a broad pairing that I saw especially play out on night one of the debate were these fringe candidates versus the leaders in the polls who tend to be, with the exception of Biden, much more liberal and support things like Medicare for all or giving free health care to undocumented immigrants. And these fringe candidates, people like former Maryland Congressman John Delaney, landed a decent amount of punches. And they were essentially the people making the case for the moderates in the Democratic Party that you're going to lose the election against Trump if you try and come out and make yourself supporting big government policies that could be labeled as socialist. 
And they question the idea that some of these policies that the more liberal candidates are putting out are even feasible. They were making them out to be these pie-in-the-sky ideas that would never actually come to pass. Yeah. Another candidate who hasn't gained traction, Montana Governor Steve Pollack, called Medicare for All. This is an example of wish list economics. economics. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett went on and on accusing these Medicare for All supporters of essentially lying to Democratic voters that these are going to raise middle-class taxes. That is totally different from the plan that Senator Warren and Senator Sanders and and Senator Harris have proposed, which would massively raise taxes on the middle class to the tune of 30 trillion dollars. And we saw on night one, Elizabeth Warren got asked repeatedly by the moderators, will you acknowledge that this plan is going to raise middle class taxes? And she dodged it. Would you raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all? Yes or no? Costs will go up for billionaires and go up for corporations. For middle class families, costs, total costs will go down. Last debate in June, Bernie Sanders, to his credit, just went, yes, that will happen. That gave an opening for people like former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke in the first night to answer the same question, you know, do you support raising middle class taxes to provide everyone government health care? And he said, you know, very firmly, no. And here's what my plan would do. And here's what what I think needs to happen. In addition, I managed to sell this in Texas, which, by the way, has 38 electoral votes. That's my case for my electability. So there were some powerful moments in this dynamic of Medicare for all versus not Medicare for all that allowed these lower polling candidates to get some punches in. And that dynamic was also interesting because it basically meant that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, two candidates that in many ways are kind of going at the same demographic, the same sort of liberal part of the party, that they basically didn't go after each other because they were playing some form of zone defense. Yeah, you hit on one of the most interesting dynamics, I think, of this primary so far. Now, Elizabeth is absolutely right. I Notice what Senator, the, I think I he said. Senator that. Sanders, please let Senator Warren respond. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, we've reported, have actually talked to each other before they ran for president and basically put together a truce. That truce has held, and I'm trying to figure out politically why. Because as you point out, they're going after the exact same kinds of voters. Warren is rising in the polls, arguably by picking off Bernie Sanders supporters. Anecdotally, Washington Post reporters on the trail have talked to people who supported Sanders in 2016 and say, you know, I kind of like Elizabeth Warren right now. Why is there a truce? We'll wait and see. Maybe they have some broader plan in play. But I, I think it's fascinating that they just totally declined to go after each other. And they don't seem to be inclined to have a fight about their policies anytime soon. You've mentioned a few times healthcare and the fact that so much of both nights of the debate focused on these differences between Medicare for all or not quite Medicare for all. And I'm wondering how you thought that those differences played out and how they might speak to bigger themes within the primary campaign. I think the debate about Medicare for all is a meta debate on how progressive Democrats think they need to be to beat Donald Trump. Pete Buttigieg on the first night, I thought, summarized this really well. He said, If if it's true that if we embrace a far-left agenda, they're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. If we embrace a conservative agenda, you know what they're going to do? They're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. So let's just stand up for the right policy, go out there and defend it. That's one side of this debate. The other one was characterized by moderates on both nights who said, that's exactly the wrong way to look at this dynamic. We are giving Trump 
Republican talking points. But you are playing into Donald Trump's hands. When we sit here and and say that there needs to be big government programs, you know, that'll cost $30 trillion to provide people health care, polls show that voters aren't receptive to the label socialism. So what are you guys doing here? Why don't why don't we follow the traditional playbook of how to win an election, which is to go down the middle? But then the risk of that, and you saw this play out, especially on the second night, was not just the differences in healthcare policy when it comes to who's really liberal and who isn't so liberal, but which ideas are simpler to communicate and which ideas are less so, that you saw Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both kind of struggle to really convey the nuances of what they have in mind for healthcare in the 15 to 30 seconds that they had to say it. That's absolutely right. I challenge anybody who watched that debate and kind of loosely follows politics to summarize what these guys support. I'm not exactly quite sure, at least from watching the debate. Exactly. And that's the challenge for someone like Kamala Harris, who's actually trying to split the differences between the moderates and the super progressives. She released a healthcare plan after waffling on whether she supports getting rid of private insurance that would keep private insurance but allow it to follow the guidelines of Medicare. So it would be like she argues Medicare, but you can have the private insurance play a role in the, in healthcare. That's hard to communicate, right? That's not a bumper sticker line. There's a lot of nuance into that policy about why it might work and why it might not work. And Joe Biden, her chief rival on this, had trouble pinning her down on why that was a bad idea because she doesn't just broadly support raising taxes and and getting rid of private insurance, which is an easier line of attack. I'm going to go back to Vice President Biden because your plan does not cover everyone in America by your staff's and your own definition. Vice President Biden, your response. Well, my response is that uh, the senators had several plans so far. And uh, anytime someone tells you you're going to get something good in 10 years, you should wonder why it takes 10 years. Kamala Harris also, I think, indefensibly couldn't explain her policy in a really clear way. You come out with this policy days before the debate, you know you're going to get attacked for it. You better have the very short elevator pitch for it ready. Exactly. She didn't have that. In addition to Medicare for All, we saw the same dynamic play out with immigration. Julian Castro argues that you should make it a civil offense to cross the border illegally. So you're not going to have a situation where you have people put in in barracks or in detention centers. Other candidates argued that's way too liberal and gives Republicans the talking point of we have open borders. This was a like a a bullet point to the Medicare for All debate, but I see this becoming a bigger issue as we near the general election because immigration is Trump's calling card. So where do things go from here? We have the next set of debates that are in September, and the idea is that potentially the field will be winnowed down enough by that point that there might be one debate rather than two. But how will what happened over the last couple of nights play out in terms of who gets to this next stage. So the Democratic National Committee for September has doubled the requirements in polling and donors required to get on stage. That's made it so about half a dozen to seven candidates have now qualified. Others still have some time. Uh, But what we're seeing is a lot of stability within the top tier. Polls still show, even after his poor performance in June, You know, Joe Biden leading the polls, followed by a mishmash of Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, some Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke thrown in there. That has stayed relatively stable. It is very difficult to, as one Democratic strategist pointed out to me, 
do well in the debates, and then translate that to the campaign trail. Kamala Harris kind of did that during the last debate, sort of polling shot up firmly into the top tier, but she hasn't, like, kept rising, even though she had the debate everyone dreams of in this field. Harris proved you can have a good debate and not necessarily make your candidacy. Like, it's still an open question where your candidacy falls within the grand scheme of things. So how do the Cory Bookers of the world translate what is a good debate, not necessarily a great debate, into something that firmly boosts them into the top tier? There's no ready answer for that, especially in such a broad democratic field. Amber Phillips writes about politics for The Fix. So Jeffrey Epstein is probably the world's richest sex offender, at least uh, that we know of. That's Beth Reinhardt. I'm an investigative reporter at The Washington Post. He is a multimillionaire, some have called him a billionaire, who has been accused of molesting dozens of minors. Billionaire financier Jeffrey Epstein has been arrested. He was taken into custody overnight at a New Jersey airport. Last month, federal prosecutors arrested Epstein on charges of sex trafficking, charges that he denies. But since these new allegations have come up, there's been this lingering question. What happened between Epstein and his old friend Donald Trump? I still think Jeffrey Epstein is a terrific guy. Well, I knew him like everybody in Palm Beach knew him. I mean, people in Palm Beach knew him. He was a fixture in Palm Beach. Uh, I had a falling out with him a long time ago. I don't think I've spoken to him for 15 years. Because before that falling out 15 years ago, they were friends. Like, there was documentation of the fact that they had a pretty close personal relationship. They ran in the same circles. They're both very wealthy businessmen. Both Trump and Epstein lived the high life in the 90s and early 2000s. They were jet-setting between New York and Palm Beach, sometimes together. They were spotted, you know, with models and girlfriends. Pictures were taken of them. Videos were taken of them. Hanging out at Trump's club in Mar-a-Lago, dining at Epstein's mansion on the Upper East Side. And then all of a sudden, in about 2004, they're no longer spotted publicly together. The mystery that we tried to solve was what happened to the relationship after 2004. Why did it fall apart? So what do you know now about what the possible reasons are for the fact that they are no longer friends? Here's what we know. In 2004, they both competed robustly for what at that time was considered perhaps the most majestic piece of property on Palm Beach, on the island. It had been owned by a nursing home magnate named Abe Gossman, whose estate was seized as part of a bankruptcy. It was a unique piece of property. The trustee in the bankruptcy case is a man named Joseph Lozinski. I talked to him. It's approximately six acres uh, on the ocean in Palm Beach. And now it was up for grabs. Three parties participated in the auction, including Mr. Epstein and Mr. Trump. 
both Trump and Epstein fiercely competed for this property. In fact, they both, in separate conversations to him privately, kind of trashed the other one. Mr. Trump specifically mentioned to me that he thought that Mr. Epstein was full of you-know-what and didn't have the money. And then when it came to the day of the auction... Mr. Epstein was represented via counsel in the courtroom. Mr. Trump was also represented via counsel in the courtroom. But Mr. Trump was on the telephone. He was not able to be there in person. My recollection was he mentioned to the court, apologizing for his lack of physical appearance, that he was uh, in the midst of filming The Apprentice and he needed to be in New York for that. So he was unable to attend in person. Epstein had made a bid and reached terms that were considered favorable, but Trump immediately showed that he was not going to be outbid. His lawyer was very aggressive during the procedure, always immediately one-upping the bid that had come before. And so what ended up happening? Donald Trump ended up the high bidder. The bid was $41.35 million. You know, it was a huge news story at the time, but an even bigger story four years later when he flipped the property for $95 million to a Russian businessman. And do we know anything about how Jeffrey Epstein felt after that, after Donald Trump had attained this highly lucrative property? We don't know much. We know that Trump apparently left two messages for Epstein at his Palm Beach estate that same month in November 2004. We don't know if those calls were returned or if they talked about the House or other issues. But we do know that after that time, They were not spotted publicly together, socializing as they had frequently in in the previous years. So that's one theory, the idea that you had these two super rich guys who were in this bidding war over this property. One of them lost. They were salty about it, and they didn't talk after that. What's the other theory that you've been hearing about what this falling out could have been about? Well, it's reasonable to assume that as Epstein faced criminal charges, he became sort of toxic, not just for Trump, but for uh, lots of people who had been associated with him. The police investigation began not long after the bankruptcy auction in early 2005. So as news about that leaked out, it's unclear whether they remained in contact or not. As far as we know, there were no public sightings of them. And in 2007, the New York Post reported that Epstein had been banned from Mar-a-Lago. Trump has said recently that Epstein was banned. We don't have any documentation of that. That's something Epstein has denied. And the circumstances of that are a little bit unclear. But we do know that a young woman who worked at Mar-a-Lago, she was just a teenager actually, has accused Epstein's longtime friend, girlfriend, Gislan Maxwell, of recruiting her at Mar-a-Lago. And then uh, she says Epstein then sexually abused her at his homes. So basically, the theory is that potentially, even though Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump were running in the same circles, were going to the same parties, sort of enjoyed this lifestyle where they were surrounded by women, young women models, that once allegations started bubbling up about Jeffrey Epstein having to do with underage women, that that could have been a bridge too far for Donald Trump and and that he would have tried to extricate himself from his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. Yes. And when he was deciding to run for president, 
one of his aides, Sam Nunberg, told my colleague Mark Fisher that he had pressed him about his relationship with Epstein and, you know, Trump had called him a creep. And so he's clearly sought to distance himself from his former friend, now convicted sex offender. Do you think that we will hear more in the future about what was really happening behind the scenes in this friendship between Epstein and Trump? Absolutely. I think interest in the relationship between a man who went on to become president of the United States and possibly the world's richest sex offender, I mean, there's just a obvious, intense interest in that. I think a lot of people are wondering what kind of information Jeffrey Epstein might have about President Trump. Whether it's about his his business affairs, his personal life. There are several possibilities, some of which we may not even know, as to why the relationship between these two men broke down. Maybe it was because of this fierce competition for this very desirable estate in Palm Beach. Maybe it was because of Epstein's increasingly toxic image as he faced these appalling allegations of abusing minors. And maybe it was something else entirely. We're still trying to get to the bottom of that. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter for The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. Pop culture writer Elahe Azadi on the evolution of the word squad. So a few weeks ago, this rift emerged between these four progressive freshman lawmakers and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Now, something like this wouldn't necessarily catch my attention as a pop culture writer, but... The squad residing at the Played center. Together, they are known as the squad. Four congresswomen known as the squad. The so-called squad and President Trump. Racist attacks on the squad. Newscasters are just using this term without any hint of irony to describe a group of people who maybe in the past would be called a particular caucus or, you know, lawmakers sometimes go by gangs, especially in the Senate. Like there's a group of lawmakers that are advocating for an immigration bill. I mean, we've seen that in the past few years, the gang of eight. I mean, that's kind of common terminology on the Hill, but this is the first time that this word is being used in this way. Calling people your squad, this is my squad, has been, people have been saying that for a long, long time. It's heavily used in Black culture. It was kind of brought out, I guess, into the more public sphere or codified among a larger audience through hip hop. All I ever needed was a squad, so that's what's up. Within the hip-hop context, there are many rap groups or collectives that are called squads. There's the Terror Squad, Def Squad in the early 90s, Brick Squad, Waka Flocka really popularized. And in 2015, he claimed that he started Hashtag Squad. And then it was around that time that Taylor Swift came out with an album and popularized her brand of female friendship, and people started tweeting about hashtag squad goals. And that kind of brought it into a different space, a whiter, older pop culture space. And, you know, it's carrying this this term squad is carrying all of these meanings into the political space. So what does it mean now that four lawmakers are using this term or this term is being used in relation to them 
on Capitol Hill, in Congress, among journalists, by the president of the United States. It's carrying these meanings around loyalty, friendship, being a person of color, maybe even. If you were to ask one of these four freshman lawmakers what this term means, they want to define it as it's very big, it's expansive. And it's beyond just the four of us. The squad is all of you. And I can tell you, there's, you are all the squad. Trust me. If you for, support equity, you support justice, you are one of us. They're trying to politicize it in a way that is connected to grassroots and progressive ideals, essentially. But, you know, not everyone views that term in that way. President Trump has tried to reduce the meaning of squad to be defined as these four people. It's very small. He started saying AOC plus three. Okay, AOC, AOC plus three. And so he's defined squad as racist, troublemakers, so he's weaponizing the term in that way. So it just goes to show, like, the power of this term, even if it's being demonized in one sense, there is a cultural resonance and understanding and meaning, even if people can't necessarily define what that is, that it's powerful in a sense. Just seeing this simple term, this one-syllable term that I've heard for years in throughout my favorite hip-hop artists, their songs, now being used in a very serious way, it just further demonstrates the power that that pop culture does have on our lives. And to dismiss it as frivolous and not worthy of any kind of serious inquiry is to our own detriment. Alahe Zadi is a pop culture writer for The Washington Post. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow's episode of Post Reports will be guest hosted by my friend, Nicole Ellis. She'll bring you the story of the search for America's last known illegal slave ship. There's no more palpable slave story than this one. You know, slavery was always sinister, but to have these people who just made a bet and put other people into bondage to win a bet, you can't get any darker. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 